Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Back in episode four, myself and historian Per Anders Rudlin spoke in length about the history behind Ukrainian Waffen SS veterans settling in Canada in the aftermath of the Second World War. This discussion was triggered by the embarrassing moment in Canada's parliament where parliamentarians gave a former Waffen SS soldier a standing ovation. Our conversation was so good and there was so much covered that we decided to turn it into a two-parter. Thus, in part two of our discussion, we explore why the history of Waffen SS veterans in Canada took so long to come out, what this says about Canada, what it means for Canadian history and the history of Ukrainians in Canada, and finally, the serious backlash that Pear has received while uncovering this issue, including serious efforts to silence Pear. This is Season 9, Episode 6, The SS in Canada, Part 2. We continue this great conversation with me asking Pear how the discovery of often SS veterans in Canada affects the broader geopolitical situation in Ukraine. Harming Ukraine. But in the U.S., the discussions here now about cutting the funding. Slovakia voted for pro-Putin uh, government right. right now. And what's worse, these, these are main news you know, in Malaysia, in main news in India, in South Africa, in Brazil, in those, those countries which are not supporting of Ukraine and looking for reasons not to do so. Uh, I was called, I got four phone calls today from, from India. I want to hear all about the Ukrainian Nazis. It, it plays into a certain narrative that is, that is harming Ukraine. But I don't want to make this an issue about Ukraine, which I do support, but this is a Canadian fiasco, a Canadian, yes. or even more so universal Alberta fiasco, yeah. Ukrainian-Canadian fiasco. And I don't feel good about it, you know? In part of me say, well, you know, this is this is exactly what I was warning about, and, and, yes. and they went into this willfully. On the other hand, I don't want this to happen. I mean, why can't a liberal, democratic, well-functioning, tolerant, progressive society like Canada address this you know the, 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 you yeah. know that question is not so much a polemical one 
as, as, as something I'm genuinely interested in. You know, why do I have Valfred as memorials in Canada, I'm, and why are why why did we arrive at this situation? There's sort of philosophical, uh, political issues of how to manage a a, a postmodern um, liberal democratic multi-ethnic uh, society, and and I think there are profound questions that should be asked. Answered and, and, here. and you're absolutely right. And just for our listeners, you know, uh, Pear Pear is not understating the fact when we were doing our grad school together. Uh, we we talked about this. This was 2006, 2000, yeah, 2006, 2005, 2006. We were there together at U of A, and and Pear was bringing this up, and and this is a real thing, and 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 I I just I really love the way you framed it. This is this is a Canadian, this is University of Alberta. This is a Canadian and a Ukrainian Canadian issue. This is not a knock against Ukraine. This is not weird propaganda coup. Well, it is a propaganda coup for Putin, isn't it? I mean, at, at the end of the day, he can still use this for his advantage, but it, it would be bastardized to say this is something about Ukraine. This is really about Alberta. This is about Canada. This is about the University of Alberta and the Ukrainian-Canadian community. I mean, and this and this is speaks to another question that we I think maybe we want to talk about a little bit is let's talk about the diaspora memory a little bit in, in Alberta because you and me have talked extensively about this. And again, for my listeners, I am of descent of of the Galician Ukrainian Canadians like this is, you know, I, 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 you know, in 2018, I went back to to southeastern Poland, you know, where, where which to my village, which was part of Galicia. So so this is something that hits home for me as well and my family as well. And let's talk about the diaspora for a second. How is the diaspora influential in shaping the narratives in the post-war period? Well, the diaspora wasn't originally monolithic. You had several waves, right? You know, I believe your 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 family belonged to the so-called first wave. They came before right. World War One, right? From the Habsburg right. Empire, right? They were usually apolitical. They were religious. They wanted land, uh, land and whatnot, right? Uh, then you had a second wave that came in the interwar period. Uh, many of them were actually quite radical. Uh, the Canadian Communist Party had had papers in Ukrainian, in Yiddish, and Finnish. They belonged to the, the radical community, but also then had uh, a very right-wing uh, section of uh, identifying with radical Ukrainian nationalism of the UUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. Then came this massive wave uh, after 1945 or 1948. And among them, according to the CIA and the International Tracing Service on estimates, about 80 percent and were sympathetic to the to the UUN, right? And these were much more educated. They were urban, they were more sophisticated, and they came to take over little by little many of the community functions mm. uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, the organization Ukrainian Nationalists, which the Bandera wing of them, which was the strongest one, uh, emigre political party, joined the Ukrainian Canadian Congress or committee then in 1959 and increasingly came to take over uh, the functions. Um, and uh, uh, by the 1980s, 1990s, they, uh, the memory politics of of of, of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress was was almost one to one, very similar to that of the uh, of of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. The, the memory politics there is 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 not not be confused with Ukrainians as such. You know, it's a primarily a third wave. You know, the post-war emigres, which were not Ukrainian. Well, we were Ukrainian, but we're not Ukrainian as such. They came from this territory of Halychina and to some extent also from, from Volhynia and Bukovina. They were Western Ukrainians because the Allies sent back Soviet Ukrainians merciless to Stalin uh, to very, right. very painful destinies. So they, the selection there were all of the Western Ukrainians and most of them were nationalistic. And they started building this, this narration. And of course, during the Cold War, I mean, they sold themselves as the West's most faithful allies. Right. Uh, and those questions about World War II and what they had done, you know, uh, the pogroms, 
Pader Uun systematically infiltrated the, the German auxiliary police, so-called Schutzmannschaften, then defected from the backbone of the Ukrainian insurgent army, which also took part in mass murder of Jews and killing up to, up to, up to 100,000 Poles. That sort of history was not discussed. Instead, of course, very strongly emphasizing a victimization narrative, the Holodomor, in which Ukrainians figure as victims. Right. And uh, these were, of course, not people that had directly experienced the famine. These were Polish citizens. They were, came from Poland. Uh, but of course, uh, not to sell the, the famine short. That was, you know, Stalin's single greatest crime against its own people. According to the most detailed uh, demographic studies we have, Jacques Vallang's study from 2002, there was an excess mortality in the Ukrainian SSR, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, of 2.6 million people. Yeah, and the Ukrainian right. study estimated as high as 3.9 million people. Right. So a reasonable guesstimate would be perhaps 3.3 million people killed or a little bit lower, a little bit higher. That makes it you know, an enormous crime of proportions, almost unimaginable. And there was Stalin's greatest crime and something that definitely should be studied and should be documented and should be commemorated. But when this is inflated to 7 million and being named the Halodomor or to 10 million and the most active people building these memorials, like for instance now in Edmonton, this the first Halodomor memorial in the world, it was not yet then not yet called the Halodomor, but the Ukrainian famine memorial. It was in, inaugurated by Petro Savarin, member of the Waffen SS, somebody who came from Poland, somebody right. who had no experience of, of the famine as such directly. So you have here a Waffen SS volunteer, blood, blood group tattoo on his left and arm, now educating the Canadian pol the public about genocide yes. and naming and inflating numbers two, three hundred percent. So that is also not doing anyone any justice. Um, I think it was Timothy Snyder who wrote that by releasing the millions of, of the souls and phantoms and ghosts of millions of people which never existed in into sort of like a mental universe here we are doing science of justice uh, no, no justice um, yeah. uh, we need to be very careful about this i mean like the holocaust would not be even either worse or less worse if i claim there were 18 million people killed in the holocaust i mean like you know we, one should be careful there's a duty as an historian yes Yes, they have this memory culture, you know, and when when the Holocaust has come up with with with, with World War II has appeared, then you know the the, the jerk reaction is well, hallowed the more Ukrainian genocide was much larger, you know, and uh, in that sense, uh, it, it 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 we are in a very unfortunate tug of war here, where I think both Stalin's horrific crimes should be and needs to be documented, and 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 we need more of of research into the Ukrainian famine for sure. It's it's fascinating because first of all, we have this horrific like trend of Holocaust denier, deniabilities, right? And the deniers, right? And they love to seize on anything that can possibly either prove the Holocaust didn't happen in their minds or diminish the Holocaust in their minds. And so this inflation of numbers is extremely damaging, not just to uh, uh, recognizing Stalin's crime against Ukrainians, but in also still making sure that people understand the the effect and the criminality of the holocaust itself for jews so this is these are these are extremely important horrific murderous events that can be studied and analyzed side by side and don't need to negate each other in sort of the academic realm yeah there was a very powerful book which i found very inspiring michael rothberg's uh, uh multi-directional memory and arguing exactly that case that the holocaust could be used to inform the public about other crimes there's no uh, you know 
uh, awareness of the Holocaust does not preclude awareness of the Armenian genocide or of Stalin's collectivization or of uh, the, the UPA's mass murder of Poles. What, one doesn't exclude the other. If you study these processes of violence and dehumanization, uh, they we can study them in tandem. But that's not how it's been done. And and that, that is a problem here, that, that this sort of memory culture, which was developed, the whole term Holodomor appeared in Canada, was re-exported to Ukraine roughly uh, in the 1990s, at a time when the Holocaust became a central focal point of Western mm -hmm. historical memory. Then they re-exported this narration of Holodomor to Ukraine. And, you know, both Kravchuk and Kuchma and, and, and Yushchenko uh, and Parashenko, they're all on record claiming 10 million people dead in the, in the famine. So they're inflating that one, right? Mm -hmm. And when Yushchenko turned the organization of Ukrainian nationalists into official heroes, official heroes, then, then uh, of course, th then it's going to be very difficult to have a candid uh, reckoning with right. the these, these groups' involvement in the Holocaust. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's also, of course, this ethnic component of this, right? You know, one of the most, um, you know, the, the Soviet history historiography was tossed out the window after 1991. You know, the, the sort of legitimizing Soviet discourse was, was out. And what it did was that they copied, uh, actually, a book which has many, many merits, Orest Subtelny's History of Ukraine, which appeared in 1988 in English, then it appeared in Ukrainian translation. And it could almost like send over these like floppy disks back then, the PDFs, and, and it was printed in large editions. And for a number of years in the 1990s, you could barely find Ukrainian history History book anywhere which did not cite uh, Orest Subtelny's Historia Ukraine, the history of Ukraine, right? You know, it became, as my former doctoral supervisor uh, used to joke, um, the new Lenin, sort of like a, a must go to reference, right? And right. in that book, I think, if I'm not mistaken, there are four or five pages, even less, dealing with other nationalities and Ukrainians, right? This is about the history of ethnic Ukrainians. In the absence of Ukrainian state, this becomes the history of ethnic Ukrainians, right? He was a professor at York University in, 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 in Ontario, in Toronto. So, of course, here, that this was land in which all the Western Ukrainian cities had Jewish or Polish pluralities, that the Ukrainians were 9% Ilyviv, a little bit more than Ivana Frankivs, but these were Jewish cities. The cities in the East were dominated by Russians. There were Armenians, there were Czechs, there were even a couple of Swedish villages, right? They, they, were, they were Genoese, they were Tatars and whatnot. That sort of history was not really accounted for. It became sort of an ethnic history of the Ukrainian ethnic suffering. And the Holodomor became the ethnic, those ethnicized as right. the extermination of ethnic Ukrainians. This was, of course, Stalin was collectivizing the agriculture. He declared the kulaks, you know, they all, we are liquidating the kulaks as a class. This was a class murder. Uh, but the reading here is that this was an, an extermination of the Ukrainian nation. It's an right. ethnocide, right? Yeah. Uh, in order to fulfill the, the UN um, definition, the UN Convention on the Prevention of the Crime of Genocide. Aspects of this that, that, that are unfortunate, and we missed so many chances to address this. Um, mm -hmm. And and now, of course, with this war in Ukraine, now of course, dealing now I have have a large endowment from the Wallenberg Foundation. I have a research group here of eleven people, and and I, I have to say, I have mixed emotions about emphasizing Ukrainian nationalist political violence during World War II, particularly when 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 Putin is using this 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 this, this propaganda. Look at it, we're fascist then, they're fascist now. Of course, not fascist now. Ukraine is a vibrant, if imperfect, but a vibrant democracy. Right. But it does have historical memory, which has not accounted for and addressed issues which are very important and central to European social and political and historical memory. And they don't even understand how central that is. Of course, Ukraine is not unique. You have this similar situation in Lithuania, in Poland, in Croatia, in Hungary and whatnot. But Ukraine is particularly vulnerable. And throughout this process, what I want to do is sort of like to try to integrate the history of the Holocaust with histories of other 
political murder and terror to yeah. raise the issues because we can't just wish them away. We right. can't just emphasize Ukrainians with victims. With independence also comes agency. You know, Ukrainians were also actors, not only objects in history. Yeah. And if you just emphasize the, the victimization narrative, you know what? What room does it leave Ukrainians? I want to bring the Ukrainians in. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is such an interesting lesson on just facing your own historical past. You don't, you know, it's, 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 it's healthy and it's important in, especially in liberal democracies, that we face you know, and, and Canada has been going through it with, you know, residential schools and the treatment of indigenous persons in this country and First Nations. So I think this is part and parcel of a demand that we have to be facing these these issues, these past. And, and this brings me to what are the liabilities when you don't face this? Like, what are the liabilities right now? Because we have geopolitical ramifications of these academic you know, realizations, do we not? Yeah, in the immediate immediate short term, like this this past two weeks since this Hunka scandal, it is, of course, that it's discrediting uh, and embarrassing Canada in the eyes of the world. This has been top news in Sweden. Uh, uh, but here it doesn't change your opinions towards Ukraine because it's consensus from right to left. You know, 100% in parliament support Ukraine and there's no doubt about that, right? This is where, but in other countries, it's different. It's, it's, it's harming uh, Canada's foreign policy interest and and even more so harming Ukraine. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, of course, you can always raise those issues, you know, I mean, ob objections. Well, we talk about the Holocaust, we say never again. And yet we have Darfur, we have Rwanda, we have Srebrenica, but we have Syria. But guess what? We don't have these things taking place in, in, in Luxembourg or in Saskatchewan or in Norway, in societies where you have liberal democracy and, and you do have this forced society to address also the most, the nastiest and most difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Germany is a much better society, for instance, than for that matter, Japan or, or Turkey. Turkey has criminalized, and Turkey is, is a criminal offense to affirm the Armenian genocide. Uh, Japan has not addressed their, their, their sort of a Korean women, comfort women, and so on, right? Yeah. And in society, Russia, I mean, don't get me started. I mean, like they, 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 it's total denial there. Well, why is Germany better society than Russia? Because they do address this. Why is Canada better society? Because they actually do have the mechanisms to, to address residential schools and the, what, whatever issues there are. And, and, and that's what makes uh, society a good society on a sort of basic level. And in the absence of these critical discussions, you leave this sort of like these this, this wounds to fester. You get a sourdough, right? It's sort of yeah. growing by itself, right? And 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 before Hunka was giving a stand, given a standing ovation by Krista Freeland and from Justin Trudeau, uh, had Krista Freeland been more candid about her grandfather's background, for instance, had she been more candid about Ukrainian World War II, she was raised in this tradition in this scout organization Plast, which they regularly saluted and celebrated the Waffenesses and Galitsen veterans. That was part of her upbringing. So, of course, you know, ex you know, but she would know, of course, somebody, 98-year-old from Western Ukraine, born in 25, a Canadian hero fighting the Bolsheviks. Well, there are only two options. Either he was in the UN or he was in the Waffenes Galitsen, uh, a few other options, right? She knew this. She could have addressed this. Uh, 
not many issues. Not on, she's not. I don't want to single her out, but you know, these issues have not been addressed, and yeah. they take on life of their own. And the only way to deal with this is to deal with traditional, messy history. And if 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 historians make people feel proud and comfortable about their past, they probably haven't done their job. I mean, well, that's, you know, right? That's you know. It. That's it, right? And I there. love Canada, you know. Well, there's yep. some things about you know uh, Alberta, you know, that I don't like, you know, you know, all, all about that. But by and large, you know, nicest people. I, I think back upon my almost 10 years in in, in Alberta with, with a lot of funness, and you know, I was so happy yep. to see you here. Very nice, yeah. decent, hardworking people, right? I, I I really like Canadians, right? Yes. But this whole idea of this multicultural is normative multiculturalism. Like every society is multicultural, right? Sweden has been multicultural as long as we've been drinking coffee and reading Martin Luther's translation of the Bible or whatnot, right? But normative multiculturalism in that sense, right? That you have like in the Canadian 1971 version, which Sweden copied, unfortunately, in 1975, the whole idea here that the government is doling out money. We support here the Druze community, the Ukrainian community, the Serbian community, and then, of course, you know, who are the Ukrainians? Well, something happened. You know, let's go and get the Ukrainian vote. Let's uh, voice. Or let's go and get the Muslim voice. 9-11 happens. And you get somebody with, with a caftan and a beard who looks Muslim and whatnot. You get Ukrainian voice, somebody in the Vyshevanka taking, you know, from an organized community. And it's, of course, a saying in, in English, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So those people who speak for the Serbians or the Ukrainians or the Hungarians tend to be not very representative. Ukrainian Canadian Congress love to present themselves as, as speaking for 1.3 million Ukrainian Canadians. Well, no, guess what? If you look at this Ukrainian censuses, right, they include all the people that are identify as partially Ukrainian, right? You can be since it's like your family. I'm sure you have mm -hmm. non-Ukrainians in your background too, right? Sure, if you have yeah. like three quarters German, then Polish, then then Italian, then Ukrainian. Well, if if you have one indicator Ukrainian, then I mean the people that are singly only Ukrainian, about 200,000. And the people that actually speak Ukrainian at home were before this war started, you know, I think uh, a few tens of thousands of people. And the people that are organized in the organization of Ukrainian nationalists or in Ukrainian Canadian Congress, they count in the, at best in the tens of thousands plus some church groups. So these people represent a few thousand people speaking in the name of 1.3 million people. And they come in the professionally ethnic outfits and explain, I speak for Ukraine. And they get the money from, 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 from the government. They get to set out this very simplistic uh, narrative. Uh, they get tax-exempt status. They get reduced postage. Uh, so you have this Ukrainian Canadian Congress, you know, safeguarding or policing a certain selective narrative down mm -hmm. to the point of setting up task forces to go after and silence critical voices like John Paul Himka and uh, and they were went after uh, Margushi for a while. They went after me. You know, I got was you know on a regular basis. They come in on a regular basis. These, these letters from these 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 patriots in Toronto or whatnot uh, mm -hmm. from the UK national organizations and they don't write me they write, write to my university and right. my administrators and allege that i'm a russian agent uh, i'm practicing hate speech uh you have to be you know in a very very stalinist way right they don't engage right. me in, in a discussion which is you know which i would be happy to do so you know they have this authoritarian right-wing groups that that get funding from the state and 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 build a monument to Shukhevich with the multicultural funding. You have here a monument to an ethnic cleanser, an anti-Semite, and a Nazi collaborator built, sponsored by Pierre Trudeau's multicultural funding, which was intended to stimulate tolerance, uh, pluralism, and, and, and whatnot, right? This, this, is, yeah. this is short-circuiting there, which is not unique for Canada. You have it in Sweden, too, even though we don't have many Ukrainians here. We didn't have many Ukrainians, but you have here... The Grey Wolves, the Turkish radical nationalists, you have Eritrean cultural organizations, and you have mm -hmm. other societies who get money from the state in order to, you know, 
if we stimulate them and treat them with respect, they become good Swedes or good Canadians. But in many ways, the money goes into groups which are separatists or are not interested in supporting uh, the sort of mainstream values, which I think you and I and most historians would, would agree upon. Let's just make it clear, like you were you were people were trying to shut you up while you were working on this material. Right. I mean, this is a very this is not you're not making this up. You were sent letters. You were you were you're the insert. The institution was sent letters telling them, you know, this guy is a Russian agent. He's spreading lies, things like this. I mean, like this is this is this did happen in Canada and and outside of Canada while you were doing your work, did it not? It's happening now. I got those letters as late um, last year. I got uh, six or seven more of those. Uh, and this is for the organized Ukrainian community in Canada, the League of Ukrainian Canadians, which is the front organization of the Ukrainian uh, organization of Ukrainian nationalists, the Bandera Wing, which are very well represented in the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. The previous director, national president, Paul Grad, was 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 active in in, in this circle. So, so, I mean, I'm not a marcher here. Like you know, I'm you know. It, 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 in Ukraine, I would be very reluctant to raise these issues. In Poland, I would be very reluctant to raise this issue. If I was a young grad student again, I, I don't know if I would have done this, right? But here now, I'm one of the lucky ones. I sit here in Sweden. I have a tenured position and I can speak my mind. But I did speak about this before I had that. There were, of course, liabilities with this. But I mean, you know, I can speak about this. My Belarusian, Russian colleagues and friends cannot. So right. I, I, I'm no marcher here. Yeah. And what was interesting is that in Canada, where the where the humanities are underfunded, they are, of course, dependent on uh, funding from donors. In Sweden, where the universities are public and funded by taxpayers, the pros and cons, of course, is that the salary is much lower here, but we have no tuition fees. So it's a democratic pr process in that too, the pros and cons. But the good thing here is that all our administration is open. So when these these, these, these ethno-nationalists in Toronto starting emailing the Swedish embassy, the vice chancellor or three consecutive vice chancellors at the University of Lund, one after another, this is of course um, in the public domain. Uh, they, they are they get stamped and so on, and they they're shared with me here. So unlike when they did this to to Magushchi in, in in Toronto, they did this to David Marples in Alberta, they did this mm -hmm. to John Paul Himka in Alberta. Mm -hmm. He could not see the letters. He could see the responses there. Uh, but in Universal Alberta, they told John Paul Himka, you know, well, the Yatsik Foundation in, 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 in Toronto is very upset right now. Yatsik was one of those people who volunteered for the Waffen-SS, but he wasn't accepted, but became a very sort of like, you know, historical activist. They were bombarding the, the uh, Universal Alberta with complaints about John Paul Himka. And the, the dean there told him to keep it down. You're ruffling feathers because they might pull this this funding as they were discussing in the in this in these uh, task forces. Here now, there's no funding they can pull, and I thought, right. okay, I, I got all this documentation which John Paul Himke could not get and Magashi could not get, so I did a sort of discourse analysis. What do they argue? Well, you know, they cite the Swedish intelligence agencies that Russia is trying to infiltrate undue undue influence and in, savvy, blah 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 blah. Uh, what else did it say? That I'm repeating Soviet narrative. I'm defaming. Right. Uh, the, the the heroic Waffen SS. This this is regurgitating Soviet lies and practicing hate speech. And we are very concerned about this. And of course, the Ukrainian Canadians like yourself are, feel unsafe because was was somebody who vandalized the monument to Shukhevich, sprayed paint, the Nazi or whatnot on him. And and so so now they can sleep at night. Uh, and 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 that is my fault. Uh, and then you have to tell my 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 head of the department and my dean and my university about this. And then ask and say, well, we're concerned about this because we're victims of hate crimes. Can we have a dialogue with you about this, right? And I would imagine the way they formulate this is like they're not doing this for the first time. That this is this is a standard procedure. They have done this, developed this art for for the past 30, 40 years. Right. So on one hand, 
accuse me of being a foreign agent and a traitor and, 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 and a hater at the same time as they are willfully lying about me to my to, to my to my bosses, right? So it's like so they accuse me of lies uh, while lying themselves. So it's like how do you deal with this? But of course, this is how the organization Ukrainian nationalists operates. Uh, this this is this is Ivan Lysakurudnitsky, who was John Paul Himka's predecessor as a, a monumental figure of Ukrainian history. He uh, he wrote about this in nineteen in nineteen seventies, called this homegrown fascist and black hunters and whatnot. So of course, all communities have those, but in yeah. the Ukrainian community, they are particularly. Uh, powerful in terms of controlling memory and determining yeah. how memory should be done, but they don't speak for, you know, like yourself, the bulk yeah. of Ukrainian Canadians, this 1.3 million people, they're like hockey night in Canada. They like this, you know, watered down Molson beer and pickup trucks and Shania Twain. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what's quintessentially Canadian, right? They don't really care so much for the Waffen and Galitsyn, if they even know about them, right? And right. I'm not sure that, that they are served justice by having Paul Grad or whatnot, you know, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress explaining that I'm speaking in, in Dave Burry's name because he, you don't even know these people, right? So, yes. so there's this sort of like, you know, ethno, ethno-nationalism that is should be problematized. And the, and the Canadian system of normative multiculturalism has has fed into this. Yes. And, there are, and I think here now, time is open to discuss this. It's been discussed in Sweden and in the Netherlands and other countries which, which, which dabbled in these policies and then started to problematize them. And that's what I'm doing here in my research project. How do you think this is going to move forward for you? Old-fashioned, empirical, messy history. Go into the archives, address the, the difficult questions. The messier, the dirtier, the better. History should not only be about victimization and and and, yeah. and, and compensation, but you know, I think these issues, uh, as unpleasant as they might be, uh, tells us more about the society we want to be than, you know, than, than Carl Twelfth, Charles XII, or, or, or heroic defenders of the Lutheran faith who, who shed the blood in the battlefield of Lützen in 1632 on the 6th of November, right? right? Absolutely. We, we move ahead of that. You know, we're historians. We're not fairytale producers. And and uh, I do my research. I speak to other historians. Uh, uh, I don't think necessarily it's that, uh, you know, it's an appoint at this point to have a dialogue with, say, the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies. I tried that. I was stonewalled. I don't think uh, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, for instance, is 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 ready for dialogue. They need to address their own past. Right. You know, yeah. now they have they issued a very sad statement on on their website. You know how they're very sorry about this. You know, uh, violence is bad, Holocaust is bad, hatred is bad, and we are very sorry. You know, nothing about how they have failed systematically to critically engage the UN, the UPA, Bandera, and the Waffenesis Halicina. What, what was repeated about Rotten in the Ukrainian parliament was what the Ukrainian Canadian Congress for 40 years has been propagating. Now the chickens are home to roost and they have some soul searching to do. And how did Canada end up here? And Canada has the mechanisms. Canada is unlike, unfortunately, many other European countries, uh, including those in the European Union, like Poland or or Hungary, for that matter, or Ukraine. You know, they don't they're not fully developed democracies. Canada is, in many ways, maybe not a model democracy, but a very well functioning society. Yes. And the paradox is, they have all those mechanisms to do this. So, if I cannot talk about this here in Sweden, or you cannot do it, who's going to do it? In Poland, uh, they are having an authoritarian backlash. Hungary, even worse. So, right? You know, so it also takes place in Europe. So we have a duty here to address those issues. And I hope that when Ukraine they will prevail. They will win this war. They will join the European Union. They will join NATO. They will be part of the Euro-Atlantic community. Uh, any doubts that uh, many might have had, and I had some reservations myself after the enlargement of the European Union, uh, they have to be set aside. It's going to be very painful, very costly, but I don't see any alternative to integrating 
Euro, uh, Ukraine into European Union and the community, which it, where it belongs or it wants to join. And as future partners and allies, uh, we need to start these discussions and, mm -hmm. and thereby helping Ukraine. And I wish Ukrainian Canadian Congress would, would, would land in that same sort of conclusion also. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.